Hey, 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 and welcome back to Folkcraft Revival. Hope you guys are all enjoying this uh, holiday season. Uh, have great plans in front of you. Different sort of episode this week. We're talking with with Neil Ritter. Uh, he's a co-founder over at the Laughing Coyote Project. Um, teaches traditional and primitive skills. A lot of youth programs and teen programs, things like that, but also adult workshops. And also involved in... A lot of the more homesteading type um, skills, um, raising pigs, has a dairy cow. Uh, He really straddles the homesteading and the traditional and primitive skills type communities. Um, But we had our conversation on integrating the traditional and um, primitive, the old ways in with modern life and uh, striking a balance between between the two. I think there's a lot of people uh, who dream of, you know, in the primitive skills community, it's the the dream of, you know, learning all these skills and be able to just walk away into the woods and live. And in the the more homesteading type community, it's, you know, I all want to buy a a small farm, become farmers, you know, it's kind of that idyllic dream that we all have. But I think very few of us are willing to walk away from modern life and, uh, all the amenities and yeah, I, I just, I don't know very many people who are willing to give up what they have in modern life in order to go back to some of these, uh, traditional life ways and skills and things like that. So I thought it was a fun episode to talk about the integration of the two, uh, learning to utilize some of the traditional skills in conjunction with the modern and, uh, what you can swap where and where you can use this particular skill and and in what areas you may want to include modern life. Not necessarily a how-to. This is more of a, a glimpse at the way Neil does things and his philosophy on living. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Had a lot of fun. He's been... Um, He's an instructor at uh, a couple of the, the primitive skills gatherings. So some of you may may recognize him, may know him. And we could have talked about a number of different skills and how to do them, but I thought this was an interesting uh, change up in in format and in what we're talking about. And hopefully you enjoyed as much as I did. Yeah, hope you guys have fun projects planned for the weekend, uh, something new to learn. Hopefully this will get you dreaming a little bit too and thinking about uh, how you live your life and what you want to improve on and where you're happy with what you're happy with and the overall balance that you want to find in your own life in integrating a lot of these skills I really think that's a personal decision and it'll vary for well for everyone so yeah let's go ahead and uh, jump into the conversation with Neil in our email you mentioned you were making a shift more towards a subsistence lifestyle. And I'm kind of curious what led you to that. Was there was there a moment that shifted things for you? Why why are you moving towards a subsistence lifestyle? Well, um my wife and I we've always been very interested in being connected to our food sources. Um my wife is half Italian, her father's from Bologna, Italy. And so, you know, she comes from a rich culinary background. Um and so we started out, I mean, almost immediately when we got together, we started gardening and we had a huge garden 
um, we got chickens, and then shortly after that, we uh, we got some sheep and some goats. But it was all just sort of haphazard. Um, but we began to, you know, raise a lot of vegetables, can a lot of vegetables, mostly doing like vinegar pickles and things like that. We found a, a little niche market for uh, lamb meat, so we started selling a lot of lamb meat. I learned how to butcher by starting with chickens, and then I learned we did turkeys and things like that. Um, and so we had this idea of sort of doing this small-scale farming thing. Um, and we were leasing a, a farm that was five acres at the time, um, where we were also running our primitive skills programs. And so we were there for about eight years, and then... Um, Five years ago, I had an opportunity to buy our own land. And so we, when we moved over um, to the new farm here, we have 20 acres, um, but I was remodeling the house. We were learning how we have uh, ditches that we irrigate with, and uh, we got overwhelmed. And so we sold or butchered all of our animals, um, didn't have a garden, and just sort of focused on learning how our ditches worked, working on the house. Um, and so then when we began the process of growing food again out here, we began to look at what our values are in terms of what we want to eat, what we, um, how we want to interact with the land. We also have a fairly strong nutritional belief system. Um, we work with it or we really follow the Weston Price Foundation diet, um, more or less, and which values a lot of nutrient dense foods, things like raw milk and eggs and organ meats and so part of it was how do we access these foods, you know, as sort of primitive skills instructors, we don't necessarily have the financial resources to just buy high quality food all the time. Um, also with our new farm, learning how to manage the land, we needed assistance from animals because we weren't wanting to just spray it with herbicides and we didn't have a tractor to, to mow or deal with weeds or things like that. And so we just made Really, it was a mental shift from being sort of market farmers to subsistence farmers. And that began to shift our entire approach to food where suddenly we didn't do as much vinegar pickling because the result of that in our diet was not as calorically dense or nutritionally dense as what we were interested in. So we started doing more lacto-fermentation. We began to think more in terms of what are we growing throughout the year that we can put up in a way that we can eat throughout the winter time. So um, we eat a lot of soup. So we began to focus on how do we preserve our vegetables so that they can go into soups in the winter. As I got further down the process of butchery, we do like probably 85% of our own butchery of our butchery we do ourselves, um, which gives us access to bones for broth and all those other little bits and pieces. We had to learn how do we deal with a tongue? How do we deal with cheeks? How do we deal with tails? And so we just focused less on creating products for a market. Um, and so, you know, switching out, like we grow potatoes, we grow dry beans, we grow um, corn, but we don't grow sweet corn. We grow corn for polenta that we eat in the winter. Or we grow popcorn because my kids like to eat popcorn. And so growing even like, how do we grow our own snack food or our own spices? So we're drying herbs. Um, we, yeah, a lot of storage crops. Yeah, so that was just kind of a, a shift. And we do sell things still because I think that both through farming and the hunting and gathering we do, there is this level of abundance. Um, you know, when you harvest an animal, a cow or an elk, there's a lot of abundance there. And so, 
you know, for us, we really value being able to share that with our community. And when we just have a lot of it, we'll, we'll sell some of it. My goal is kind of to break even financially, um, just to pay for like chicken feed and the hay we use in the winter. Cause we don't have enough land to produce our own hay for the cows and things like that. I think that's, um, something for me, I have always kind of dreamed about owning a small farm. I think a lot of people do. There's something just idyllic about it. But I talked with my wife about it a few years ago and be like, honestly, I've I've done farming when I was younger. And I, I worked for a guy who I was out, you know, moving sprinkler pipe and feeding his cows and whatnot. And that's what I did to make extra money when I was a kid. We were some of the only people around who knew how to milk goats. So when anyone that left town that had livestock, uh, especially goats, wanted to go on vacation, they would call us. I've seen how much work it is to keep animals and I don't necessarily want to do it for everyone else and try and market it. I've come to the conclusion that's too much work for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I say the same thing, you know, if I, cause people ask, you know, if we make our living as farmers and in the sense of, do we make our money as farmers? And, and I say, no, gosh, if I did that, I'd have to actually start working. Um, as it is, I just put in 14 hour days, you know, <laughs> but you get all your own food. And it's much, much higher quality. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I say we eat the best food in the world. Like there are days when I don't know what we're going to eat for dinner that night. So we eat ribeye steaks, you know, like that's, or, you know, um, I bake all of our bread. We do sourdough bread. And so we'll have sourdough bread, fresh sourdough bread with roasted bone, bone marrow or liver pate. And, you know, with the cow, it's like, if we want to, we just drink cream. You know, like, so we yeah. can eat incredible food um, all the time. Yeah, it's it's really special. And my kids just love, I mean, they drink tons of milk. They love eggs. Um, my boy who's six this morning, he's like, when are we going to harvest some more roosters? Because I'm ready for some rooster livers. <laughs> That's unusual for a six-year-old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Have you found, this? this one's a personal question. Have you found a cow to be overwhelming in the amount of milk it gives? I know for two reasons. One is we have um, A2A2 Jersey cows that are from New Zealand genetics, which means that they are a little smaller and stockier than many of the jerseys you find in this area um, or in America in general. And so right now we only have one milker and she's giving us right around two gallons of milk a day. So that's a lot of milk over the course of a week. But um, for a cow, it's not so much. And then you combine that smaller volume with pigs and you never have too much milk. So we produce all of our own cooking fat, primarily ghee and lard, and, and we make all of our own butter for the year. And so when we're feeling overwhelmed with milk, we'll just start skimming cream off the top. Um, and we just keep the cream that will either ferment, we make like kefir or some people call it kefir, but I'll do it with straight cream. And so instead of doing like fermented milk, we do fermented cream and then we'll make butter and ghee and then all the skimmed milk goes to the pigs. And so that's a way that we can just easily manage our volume. I mean, we drink a lot of milk, but, you know, trying to focus on fats. So again, as a subsistence farmer, I need what's the most calorically dense and fat is where it's at really. And so anytime we skim off the cream, I have no reason to drink skim milk because I have a cow. And so it goes to the pigs and it doesn't feel wasteful because then they just make bacon. Yeah. And then when we get into the hard cheeses, you know, that'll take five gallons of milk for one cheese. 
and and then it just reduces and then I'll age those for six months. And so that's another way that we, yeah, all the, all the process, like there would be too much if we were just doing milk, but as we process down to cheeses and yogurts and butter and things like that, the, the volume just reduces. Thinking too, the pig is uh, very handy. Having been around just goats and milk, seeing how much milk a goat produces, I already think that a goat would produce plenty of milk, but if you have pigs that are willing to, or that you're giving the excess to, I suppose that, that helps significantly. Yeah. And just with that whole subsistence lifestyle that we do, the pigs are sort of an integral part because they, they do work on the land. They have specific management jobs on our farm. But, you know, when we're foraging for apples, you know, in, in the fall, because um, our apple trees are still very young. So we go around with a trailer and collect apples. You know, we just pick up any apple. And that way, if we say, hey, can we come pick apples at your place? Everyone's happy to have us because we don't just pick the good ones. We take all the mushy ones, all the rotten ones, everyone on the ground, and then that goes to the pigs. Um, when we're making kimchi or sauerkraut and we're cleaning out all the outsides of the cabbages, that goes, all that goes to the pigs. And so we could, in theory, compost all of that, but it's just one more sort of loop in our system that we can um, take advantage of resources. What animals do you have at the moment? Uh, currently, we have cows, pigs, chickens, geese, and bees. We had goats. I'd like to get back into goats. With our management system, it was just a little bit, it took us a little too much time for the return. When we got cows, we just needed to simplify. You know, we also have a three-year-old and a six-year-old, and so we have to sort of focus our energy. I'm thinking about getting some more lambs this next year, but for now it's the cows, the pigs, the chickens, and the, the geese are our primary animals. Okay. What's kind of your breakdown between wild foods and domestic? How do you go about that? Yeah. I mean, my dream is for us to eat mostly wild meat combined with a little bit of pork fat. <laughs> um, but it's, I would say at this point, we're probably 85 to 90% domestic foods. So yeah, I got an elk this year. And so we eat a lot of elk. We also butchered a cow. So like in my freezer right now, I have the cow, an elk, a pig and a half. Um, and that'll be most of our meat, you know, for the next year. I'll be hunting small game for variety because we don't ra raise any meat chickens or anything like that. And so if we want sort of a lighter meat, that usually comes from wild game. We also get a lot of our wild meat from fresh roadkill. And so in the past, that's the way we've eaten a lot of elk and deer. And then we forage heavily for greens in the spring. So like May in particular is the sweet spot when, you know, our growing season here in Colorado is fairly short. And so it takes us a while to get those first greens in the garden. And so when the lamb's quarters and the auroch and the nettles are coming in, we just harvest those heavily. And that's our main vegetable in the spring. Um, and we've gone through most of our stores from the previous year. Most of our fruit is foraged. Either it's wild or feral that we've found. And then we forage for mushrooms um, in, the, in the summer. But it is mostly domestic foods at, at this time. You know, I have a dream of, of doing more and more of the foraging and, and hunting. And I think some of that will just be as our kids get older because we want to bring them with us into the field when we're doing those things. I try and choose something to focus on for the year. And that was supposed to be my focus this year is foraging. Yeah. And I didn't do very well. Uh, yeah, I just didn't have the time I needed. And 
things kept coming up and whatever. So I'd end up collecting a few things while out with the dog in the evening or take the kids up the mountain for a little hike before bed or something like that. But with a couple of young kids, yeah, you're not out for very long and you're not, they, they don't want to just sit there while you dig something up or at least not more than one or two things up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is, we've, we've created a certain level of family culture around that. So, you know, in the summer we're, we're working hard. We, I mean, both on the farm and we also run summer camps. And so it's our busy season for us. So our f- sort of family time together is we'll go off into the mountains um, and, you know, find a nice stream. So the kids are splashing and playing, we're playing and, and it is sort of more opportunistic foraging. Yeah. And, and, you know, with the amount of space we have on our farm, we do a certain amount of foraging on our farm of wild plants um, because we do, we have 20 acres, but we only really manage agriculturally about four acres of that. And so the rest of it, there are things that will come up, you know, we'll, we'll harvest cattail pollen, um, milkweed shoots and milkweed buds. We have some nettles out here. And so, so those things we can do fairly simply or, or, you know, after we move the cows, we can, you know, as we make our way back to the house, harvest some of the plants that are on our farm. And then we do sort of just make it as part of our adventures as a family to go do some of the other wild plants in wilder places. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely. hard to deny that part. It's a lot of fun to be out collecting your own food and just to experiment with new things you haven't tried and whatever you've never even seen other people using. But like I said, it's the time aspect that's difficult sometimes. And the windows are so short. I mean, you can, oh, yeah. you can watch a, a plant coming in and then, yeah, something comes up in your schedule and you're three days late and it's gone, you know? And so you do have to be on it. And so I, I try to be gentle with myself. You know, there's certain things like I completely miss choke cherries this year. And I'm really hoping this next year to get a lot of choke cherries. And... I might miss them again, <laughs> you know, and, and that's just part of, part of life here, but, but it is something I'm really, you know, I have a few things I try to simplify a little bit. So what are those two or three species I really want to make sure to, to focus on and then see what others I can get at the same time. That kind of holds true with the domestic ones, but not as much because they've been bred to produce over a longer period of time by and large. But yeah, I know I, did the same thing with cherries this year. We only got about three, four gallons of cherries, something like that. I had picked off the neighbor's tree, but I meant to go out and harvest like five or six other trees worth of cherries and missed it by uh, a week. I was out for a week backpacking in the sawtooths in Idaho. And when I came back, they were all dropped. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. So that's, we we have been known like when we go into town, because that is where we'll hit certain feral trees and alleys and things like that. And we have been known at like 8 PM to be in an alley with our kids, like harvesting off of a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Your website on your bio, it says, and here I'm going to quote, let's see. He is seeking the hybrid primitive modern model where ancient skills are integrated into everyday life. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So I first started primitive skills right after I um, got out of high school. But at the time, the language I used was survival skills because that was all I saw around me. Um, So I began to practice things like primitive traps and bow drill fires and um, sleeping out in in simple shelters and things like that. And my plan was always I'm going to get 
so good at this that then I'll go off into the woods with nothing for a week, two weeks, a month, and then, you know, live off the land and then come back. And I, and that would, that was just kind of my plan. And, and uh, after a little while I began to examine that and I thought, well, that's kind of not actually what I'm interested in. I mean, I still enjoy doing sort of very simple trips where we're kind of roughing it, but I want to integrate this lifestyle every day. And so I began to find what are those skills? I, I think of them kind of like a crossover skill. What is that skill that is primitive or traditional in its roots, but still is very useful um, every day? For me, a great example is brain tan buckskin. I love tanning. I tan all the time, all the time I can. Um, and I make clothing out of it. And I And I try to make tailored clothing that is modern in function. You know, for example, I haven't, I don't make moccasins. Um, I think they're beautiful. I think they're comfortable and they're difficult for me to wear when I'm out running a chainsaw or if I'm walking around on concrete in town. But I do make, I have a pair of buckskin shorts that I wear every day in the summer because they're very comfortable. They move well with my lifestyle. They're incredibly durable. I, th- I think they look good as do I get a lot of positive comments about them. Um, but I can wear them every day and they have pockets and they fit great. I have a, a buckskin, uh, like hoodie that I wear. Um, and again, when I'm running through the brush playing games with kids, it holds up great, better than a lot of the modern synthetic outdoor clothing. It's great when I'm hunting, it's quiet, it blocks the wind. It has a more natural look to it. Um, so buckskin is a great example of something that is a primitive skill or a traditional skill, but it works great. My current project is I'm, I'm getting hides together to make a pair of pants. Because again, when I'm running a chainsaw, when I'm feeding the cows, they're going to hold up better than the Carhartts that I typically wear. Foraging and hunting is another one. Like we all eat. And so those are opportunities for me to connect to natural places and yet bring food back to my family. And so it is those aspects and even just that sort of scavenger mindset, like looking at the environment, both natural and man-made, and what are the resources that aren't being utilized that we can use in our life? And so I think some of those sort of the mindset of the hunter-gatherer is also one we can apply to the modern world. In terms of traditional skills, my brother's a blacksmith. And so I, um, I'll have him, you know, either help me make tools or I'll have him make me a tool, you know, so I'll, I'll instead of using a, a knife that I purchased, I might be using a knife that he made me. Um, especially like when I was butchering the elk I harvested this fall, you know, I have a particular knife I had him make for me that is the right size and shape that I want it to be for processing animals. And then I also love greenwood spoon carving. And so I carve spoons and and those are things we can use. I'm working on making a pole lathe so that we can start turning more of our own bowls. Ironically or interestingly, my my father-in-law is a is a potter. He makes ceramic bowls and plates. And so we do eat off of handmade pottery. But you know, I'm imagining there's going to be a day where he's going to be retiring. And so what's the next, what are the next, you know, items that we can eat our food off of? And so that is kind of for me, um, what are these skills that are primitive or traditional that still make a lot of sense every day um, in the modern world? Maybe more work, but still, still sort of are useful. It's not like I don't have to go out of my way and make things incredibly difficult. I heat my house only with a wood stove. And so we're making a fire every day. 
And so, you know, most days I, I use a match because I've got a lot on my plate, but fairly often I make the fire with a hand drill because I can also do the hand drill fairly quickly. And, and there's just that sort of greater connection then, um, in that process. I make gourd water bottles that I use fairly often, especially in summertime because they insulate. And so I can, when I'm out teaching summer camps or working on the farm, if I put my water bottle down in the shade and the shade moves and suddenly my water bottle's in the sun, this gourd water bottle insulates the water so it stays cooler. And so then I have cool water to drink. So it's, it's lots of little pieces like that. So I'm always looking at what is that piece um, that fits into my life? What, what, what do I need? And then how can I make that from the natural landscape if possible? I think I've kind of come to a similar conclusion. I grew up with that desire to just, you know, walk away into the hills and be living out in the middle of nowhere. I think a lot of, especially young men, dream about things like that. Absolutely. But when it comes right down to it, not very many of us are willing to just walk away from everything and disappear to the hills. Yeah. But we still have a passion and a love for the skills, the knowledge, the techniques, whatever that have they've been around forever and it's difficult to try and figure out how to use some of them practically in modern life. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, another one is like, I, I split wood, you know, and that's just one I love. And, you know, I have axes that my brother made me um, based off of traditional designs. And it's, it's like, it's one of my favorite physical activities is splitting wood. You know, I feel like it's getting me stronger. It maintains my, um, my fitness level and I'm using a beautiful handmade tool. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's kind of like when you, I, I've, I've created needs since I only heat with a wood stove, I need to process wood and, and chop wood. And so then I get to participate in these processes. Some days, whether I want, I mean, I always want to, but it's just, I have to prioritize it over other things because otherwise we are cold. <laughs> What are some other common ones that you see people really using frequently in modern life? Um, so we, we've already talked a little bit about foraging and hunting. I think that being involved with food is huge, because especially wild foods, because no matter where you live, you can access them. You know, I, I have the ability because I own land to raise a lot of food through farming. But, you know, anyone in, in America can hunt. Um, anyone can go into a wild place and forage. And as you said, there's a time element, but that's, I mean, connecting to our food, I think is huge. And that's kind of connecting to our, our lineage as human beings, you know, connect, collecting food off the landscape. One of the ones we use daily is, um, willow basketry. So my wife is just incredible basket weaver. Um, and so we maintain several different willow patches that we coppice every year. Some of those are on our land and some of them are not. And so we'll, knock on doors or get access to people's land. And, and most people are happy to have us manage them because otherwise they become these pretty gnarly thickets. And then we weave, well, she primarily, I, I do some weaving. I love it, but she's particularly skilled. And so we broke our laundry basket, a plastic laundry basket last year. So she wove a willow laundry basket and it's beautiful. And I like just carrying it around <laughs> with laundry in it. Um, we also weave willow pack baskets, um, which is, one of my favorite things. So I have like a day pack size that I carry around and I find it so much more useful for me when I'm out foraging. I can fill it without 
things getting crushed. Um, or I can be wearing a pack basket and, and a friend or my wife or my kids can just drop the food right in my back without having to open things up. If it's only partially full, I can still drop in a water bottle and it doesn't like, you know, swing around in an awkward way. Um, with some of my, some of my project, like hand drill kits, I can put in my pack basket and I'm not worried about the spindle bending. And then she also, the summer just wove me like an expedition sized pack basket. So I'm just finishing putting the straps on it, but that's, you know, like the equivalent of whatever it would be a 75 or 80 liter backpacking backpack, um, that I'll start taking on trips into the back country. It's a little heavier than a modern pack, but because of how rigid it is, it carries weight incredibly comfortably. I mean, the willow basketry is one that we just use all the time. I mean, think of how many, how many needs of containers you have in a house, (laughs) you know, all those little things, your keys, your sunglasses, um, the oranges you get at the store. And so we just have baskets all over the house. And that's just this beautiful artistic activity also. Like I mentioned, spoon carving is one that I love. Um, it takes very little, you know, you get a spoon knife, uh, a good hatchet and a, and a good, you know, Sloyd style knife and, and, and you're set. And that's a great wintertime activity by the wood stove for us. Yeah. That one I think has huge crossover sort of potential. Those are like the big ones that I would, I use the most, um, that I could see being very applicable. And then like in the realm of food, I mean, not so much primitive skills, but as we get into traditional skills, you know, I think all sorts of forms of fermentation, whether it's making kraut or mead or, um, uh, what are some other ones we do? Kefir, kombucha, sourdough. Those are just ways to engage in the environment and, and your food processes. And for me, butchery has just been enormous in terms of being able to make sausages, making our own bacon, dry curing meat, things like that has, has really added a lot of, a lot of enjoyment into our life. Yeah. And then you take something like bacon and suddenly when I buy, you know, if I were to have to buy just pork belly instead of bacon, you save a lot of money. And then you can also customize the bacon to your own tastes and needs. Um, and then anytime you can raise an animal or, you know, before we were raising our own animals, we would buy like a whole cow or a whole pig from local farmers. And again, suddenly you're paying three, four or $5 a pound for an entire animal and you're eating the expensive cuts. But then if you can do your own curing on top of it or sausage making, you know, you're eating your bacon, your sausages, your copas, your hams for just a fraction of what they would be otherwise. Yeah. For folks that are interested, we just did a podcast episode on willow weaving. So that would be a good place for people to get kind of an introductory start or understanding of the willow willow basket system but i especially like your idea of a willow laundry basket i i have mixed feelings about plastic i don't really like it but at the same time i don't necessarily want to just throw everything away and then try and replace it i like this uh nalgene water bottle i've had it for six or seven years and i'm probably not going to replace it with a plastic water bottle at the same time i feel guilty just throwing it away at this point so until it breaks i'm stuck with it. Yeah. And that has been kind of a cool thing of, of learning, um, as we learn a skill and then you can just replace something, you know, whether it's a water bottle, another one, I make my own sandals, but I make them out of conveyor belt. So it's tough, but it's also cheaper. And I, and I make them the way I want them to be in. And that's been a great skill. I I haven't 
purchased a pair of sandals in, I don't know, six years probably. Um, at this point, I just make my own. And so, yeah, as I learned that skill, I kind of phased out my last pair of sandals and, and now I, I make them. And when they're at the tail end of their life, I'll make the next pair. And so, yeah, I never had to just throw out something that was perfectly functional. But with the willow weaving, like we have our last plastic laundry basket is on the way out. We both see that, you know, it's one of the handles fell off the other day. And because like you, I mean, I don't love plastic. I don't want a lot of it in my life. I also want to use things to the end of their life cycle instead of throwing them away functional. So we're going to keep milking this laundry basket probably for a few more months to give my wife time to make the next laundry basket out of willow. And then when it's done, we're going to just have willow baskets, but we're not going to just willy nilly throw things away. You know, we'll we'll use them because I think, yeah, there's like, I love plastic five gallon buckets. I think that's one of the greatest inventions of our civilization. You know, like I've joked, if I were to go back to the stone age and I could bring one item, it would be an unlimited supply of five gallon buckets. That would be the only thing I'd want to bring with me. So I'm not pretending I'm going to get away from plastic anytime soon, but just adding that, that beauty and that liveliness back into our life, I think has a lot of value. Yeah. You're talking about your, your day size pack, your willow pack for foraging. I've been struggling with what to use for foraging. I may have to uh, get you to send me some measurements or something and try and weave my own because I've been struggling with systems on where to put my food when I'm collecting it and how to avoid crushing it. Yeah, we, we, we've had that same story because we've only ever been carrying one kid at a time. We have two children and, and, uh, and so, yeah, usually one of us has one child and one of us has one pack basket and then we're, you know, holding the hand of the other child and so that's another thing that's so nice about it is if we're both foraging and one person has the pack basket, it's so easy to put thing for both people to collect into the pack basket. Uh, the other one I like to do when I have either a, when I'm backpacking and I have a backpack on my back or a child on my back is I make a smaller folded bark basket that I'll put a strap around my neck. So it's right in front of me so I can collect into that as I'm walking and then empty it into a larger container. So like when I was harvesting Saskatoon's, um, that's what I would do is I'd have it around my neck. So it's super convenient to just pick berries and throw them in there. And then we'd empty into a larger container. And I can do that with a kid on my back with another pack on my back, but still have something in my hands that I, or close to my hands that I can fill with food. I like that system. As if I'm often with a pack on my back already, that's a, that'd be a handy one to have is hanging there in the front. So yeah, exactly. On, on that note, we talked about some of the things that you kind of prefer to go traditional route or subsistence route, build your own, make your own handmade. What are some things that you definitely go modern on? Uh, my chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that, I mean, sure. What I love to go out with some sweet two man saw and harvest all my firewood in the forest. Absolutely. I think that would be so fun. And the amount of efficiency I get with my chainsaw, I think, I think in my life, it is the single most efficient use of fossil fuel. I can put up so much firewood so fast. And then afterwards, like I said, I do use a mall, a splitting mall to, to split the wood. So I don't have a splitter, but that's one I just really, I, I think that's an incredibly valuable tool. I, I have an electric meat grinder. I had a hand crank one, but you know, I process a lot of meat and just having that efficiency is great. 
Um, I really like with my vehicle, the places I can get to quickly. I think there is no primitive equivalent to modern rain gear. I think that's, you know, or, or rubber boots. Oh my God. There's a time in May when it's like my rubber boots are, and, and, you know, I can do a lot of stuff. Like I'll spend a lot of the year in sandals. I'll do a lot of farm work in sandals, but you know, when I'm out, you know, building fences or moving cows, like I really like having rubber boots when it's wet and sloppy out. So I think that there's, Oh, and I mentioned five gallon buckets. I love five gallon buckets. And, and for example, we, with our cows and our pigs and our chickens, we do a sort of what's called a holistic management plan or um, rotational grazing. And so we'll use um, sort of temporary fences with poly wire and then a, a solar fence charger on it. You know, there are other ways that I could move my animals in the same way, but it would involve like old school shepherding where I would be sitting out there keeping them sort of in the right places all day, which maybe when my boy is 10 years older, I'll send him out to do, <laughs> but, but I have, I have a lot to do, you know? And so it's a way that I can sort of replicate on the landscape, what traditional pastoralists would be doing, but using modern technology in a way that allows me to be more efficient because I mean, I should say the glaring void in all of this is these things were not done in a nuclear family, right? Like these, these are, you know, traditionally these are all communal tasks and we develop some level of that. We have a few um, sort of nomadic friends in the primitive skills world who will come here for a month or three months or four months and just participate in our lifestyle. Um, my father-in-law lives a couple of miles down the road. And so he'll come out and um, help us with various projects. We will incorporate friends and family into our, into our farm, but most days it's me and my wife doing everything. And so we, we lean on a lot of modern technology to allow us to do the scale of what it is we're doing. I mean, we grow 80% of our calories. We put up all of our own firewood. We run a primitive skills organization. Um, and so we do absolutely depend on, you know, deep freezers and refrigerators and my chainsaw to get a lot done. That's hard too. If you were simply focusing on subsistence, that would be one thing, but where you're trying to run a program and a school at the same time, that's a lot of time out of your day that you can't be working on the things that you need to do around the place. Exactly. So it sounds like you still, you do pretty well then at integrating primitive and modern. You have both the modern tools and equipment and some things which are just functionally better in your life and quite a lot of the primitive or traditional things that are often used and also frequently a part of your life. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, um, like at dinner parties, we can quickly become something of like a spectacle when people start asking, you know, some of my friends know how to get a rise out of a crowd when they'll look over and say, Hey, what roadkill have you picked up recently? And that goes into a whole, a whole story. So yeah, we are not, um, normal in the sense that there, there are not many people in our area doing what we do, um, yeah. by any means. And yet we, there, we do enjoy taking advantage of the modern world. I, you know, with family, we have family all over, you know, in, in several different countries, my wife's family in Italy. She also has family in England. I have my brother living in Sweden. We love, you know, modern technology to communicate with them, whether it's a FaceTime or Skype or just using email. Um, 
going into the local towns. You know, we, we definitely enjoy some of the, um, the resources we have in the modern world for sure. I mean, we're not trying to be hermits. We're not, um, dogmatic about our approach to this. I think at the core, we love making things. We love being connected to food and, and we believe that there's a value for ourselves in the planet of, of making things with our hands and from the landscape. You were talking earlier about how you kind of uh, practice your primitive and your traditional skills. I noticed on your website too, you break down kind of your opinion, your views on primitive ancestral, traditional and survival skills, as well as bushcraft. What's kind of your opinion on how they are different and how they overlap? Yeah, I mean, I think the the main thing for me is just um, clarifying language, right? So um, I've had some people become offended when I talk about primitive skills as though I'm insulting specific people as being primitive, meaning like crude or, or basic. Um, but I think of the word primitive as um, coming from the root of primo, meaning first. And so when I think of what, when I say primitive skills, I'm, I'm mostly referring to things we would find in pre-metal technology. So that would be anything, you know, we've been making bows for a long time. We've been weaving baskets for a long time. We've been foraging, we've been hunting, we've been gathering, we've been making stone tools, pottery, things like that. Many of them, I would put a friction fire. I'd put in the category of primitive skills, traditional skills in my, the way I use it is once we started using metal. So a clear example would be flint and steel fire making. Um, although of course, you know, in Europe, they were making some percussion fires with things that were found without smelting metal. But once we get into blacksmithing and, um, and using metal tools, um, that to me is more traditional skills. Then of course, there's a quite an overlap, right? So when I'm brain tanning, I think of brain tanning as a primitive skill, yet I'm 80% of the time I'm using a metal scraper, scraping tool um, when I wet scrape. I'll use, um, I have a moose bone scraper that I like to use actually quite a bit of the time. Um, but, you know, in reality, I'm often using a metal tool to do a primitive process. Or when I'm making It's a bows, good example, too, of your integration of the modern with the primitive. Exactly, exactly. And, and then you make your scraping tool out of an old leaf spring from a truck that died, and suddenly we're scavenging the materials from the modern world to do something that's, you know, a more primitive skill. Um, I want to make a bow with stone tools. I haven't yet. The bows I've made, I've used steel tools. So again, I have that sort of that, that uh, balance between something that could be primitive, but is more sort of in the realm of a traditional skill. Um, again, just using the language that I use around it. Ancestral skill is just something that is in our past that our ancestors use. And that's something that is, I'm very passionate about. I, as much as possible, look to my ancestry where there's information and try to replicate the skills that were used in that region of the world. Um, so I come from a lot of Northern European folks. And so the bows I make are very similar to bows that were made and used in Northern Europe. You know, the, the bark tanning and the, and the brain tanning, there's evidence of that in Northern Europe. Um, the wattle and daub house I've been working on with my students this year, we're using European thatching techniques. And, you know, there are centuries old buildings in Europe that were made using that technique. And so I definitely look to my ancestry with my wife's Italian heritage. We're looking to 
sort of her ancestry. And when we go over to visit family, we talk to butchers, we talk to cheesemakers. And, and so a lot of the homesteading culinary values we have come from Northern Italy. In fact, today we're making a traditional bolognese lasagna with elk and cow meat from the farm and tomatoes that we canned in the garden and onions from last season. And, and so, you know, we're sort of incorporating her ancestry into our diet as well. I see how that could get a little difficult, though. You come from two different heritages, and then you're also living in a third place. And for me, I've always kind of felt a little conflicted. Do I try and pursue the skills that are typical of the area I'm living in? Um, the area I'm living in is traditional Shoshone area. Mm-hmm. Do I you know, try and make Shoshone-style bows? Because they lived here. They obviously know what worked well, yeah. especially with the materials. Or do I, yeah, try and chase something? My my heritage is Welsh. Do I try and make Welsh style bows? And right, yeah, and and I would say that that is again where that hybrid concept comes in because you know the ethnographic information we have from the indigenous peoples of North America is much more current than from my heritage. Yeah. You know, so there's there's not three hundred examples of bows made in. England and Sweden, you know, 10,000 years ago. So, you know, there is that element of, of just being respectful and, and understanding that, yeah, like when I look at certain wild foods, I have to look at the people that lived here because they were the ones that were eating them. My people didn't have choke cherries. And then there's also just the space for what is our um, capacity for imagination. So the buckskin clothing I make is not based on any tradition. It's based on the Carhartts that I wear that fit me well and work well in my life. So I'm making buckskin Carhartts essentially. Um, (laughs) And so then there's this coming together of, you know, who knows what traditions and, um, and then like the brain tanning, like the way in which I brain tan, I don't know where that comes from. I mean, I know who I learned from originally and I owe a lot of gratitude to him. He's the one, he's the reason why I actually can tan at all. And yet through reading books and talking to other tanners and just integrating it into my lifestyle, I tan in my own, my own way. I don't I'm know. I'm sure you've changed it too, since you learned. Exactly. It's changed. And, and I don't know if anybody else has ever tanned the way I do. Probably where in the world were they tan? I don't know, but it's, it's become sort of my flavor and I can't give you, I can give you some of the origin story, but I can't tell you like it's not in the style of something else. I think, so many of these skills, when we look at cultures in the past, I mean, skills evolved, right? They didn't stay the same. And so I'm still doing the same thing where I'm taking elements that work for me and integrating them into my needs as somebody living at this time. Which is essentially what we need to do. I mean, it's fun to look back at our ancestry and what they did to live and survive. But frankly, the world has changed. Exactly. Cultures changed and you're most of us don't live in the exact same historical area our ancestors did. Well, and, and we have like hunting regulations are different than anyone dealt with before. And so, you know, I have thought of, you know, what would be the bows of this place, but I also cannot, you know, ride down an animal on horseback and shoot him with a bow, which was what was done where I live, you know, um, at least for, you know, a couple hundred years when those people had access to horses. Bison in general are in short supply. Huh? Yeah, exactly. And I also like, I can't go to the Kalahari and learn hunting techniques from the Bushmen and then come back here and shoot an elk with a poisoned arrow, you know? So I have, it just so happens that 
folks in Northern Europe four to 6,000 years ago made bows that also fit into our modern hunting regulations. So that's also, I guess, convenient for me. <laughs> um, and then I guess just to sort of round out the definitions, I think of survival skills as dealing with some level of a disaster, you know, because for me, so much of the primitive skills and traditional skills is more about living. And I think when you're, when you're living, you have time to make things beautiful. Like when I make a, a spoon, you know, I'm coal rosing it. I'm making, I'm engraving it with designs. Um, I'm not simply just making a hollowed stick that I can just shovel food into my mouth with. Whereas, you know, my car breaks down in winter in the mountains and I'm isolated. That to me is a survival situation. My goal is to survive the night, survive the next day, get out. And so I, you know, I moved from when I first started calling it survival skills to making these definitions. I think there's a lot of crossover. You know, if I go into the woods on a more sort of primitive trip where I'm building shelters and sleeping outside and, and cooking on the fire, if I were to get into a survival situation of some sort, a lot of those understandings of thermodynamics and, and building shelters to protect myself are valid. But if I'm in my car, I'm not going to then go out of my car and try to start breaking branches to build a shelter when I have one that's already waterproof in my car. I'll start modifying it um, to survive there. And then, you know, honestly, this term bushcraft is used a lot, particularly in Europe. And I, I think it's a lot of fun and I still don't entirely know. I, I have some friends that run a bushcraft school in Europe and I think everybody there has a very personal definition of bushcraft. The way I think of it is this sort of nice hybrid of modern and primitive and going out into the woods. And so often when I go on a backpacking trip or a backcountry trip, I'll often bring a synthetic um, tarp shelter with me because it's light. It's super efficient to hold off the rain, gives me time to work on other things when I'm out there. But I almost exclusively start my fire with a friction fire kit, usually hand drill. And so then I have this interesting sort of hybrid of bringing high tech modern materials and very simple primitive ones um, into the field at the same time. A lot of it I find just allows me to travel somewhat lighter, be more engaged in the environment, and also focus on specific goals while I'm out there instead of every time having to spend the first couple of days making a good shelter or, you know, being hungry for a few days while I'm trying to forage. You know, if I bring food with me, then I can work on other skills while I'm out in the field. Yeah, I kind of like the bushcraft idea. I've it's kind of a hard one to really define in my mind because yeah, the primitive skills and survival skills are fairly straightforward. Yeah. The bushcraft, it seems to pull a lot from like the 1800s traditional camping, a lot of like ax work, knife work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Tarps and canoeing skills and things like that. So it's, yeah, it's kind of an interesting cross between the like primitive survival type skills, your, traditional camping and then modern materials just interesting flavor yeah and i think with the bushcraft for me is it it just frees me up to when i go out what do i want to bring with me like sometimes i'll backpack with a hatchet which for most people is crazy but it's because i want to focus on making some spoons while i'm out in the field so i'll bring a hatchet and a spoon knife and enjoy that process i think there's also in bushcraft this really nice element of sort of like of like natural engineering, you know, like how do we build a, an adjustable pot rack system over our fire so that we can cook some nice food and yeah, enjoying the facility with tool use 
to allow a variety of um, cooking experiences or shelter experiences. And so, yeah, I see that there's a lot of skill with knives and hatchets and saws and, and, you know, how do we, how do we go out and try to integrate it at varying levels in the natural landscape? Um, people are going to ask, or going to be curious. I'm curious, how does trying to live a more subsistence lifestyle impact or change how you raise kids? That's been one of the most special parts about all of this. So we, I mean, my, my child, I have a, a son who's six years old. His name's Lutreo. And then my daughter, Fianna is, uh, is three. And our plan is to homeschool them at least until further notice. Um, I'm really excited about that. I work with a lot of homeschool students and I'm, I see a lot of some of the exciting possibilities with that lifestyle. And so what that means is they're with us. So whether we're teaching our primitive skills programs or on the homestead, um, they're with us. And, and sometimes that means Lutreo will be off just playing imaginary games and building himself forts or, you know, swinging on a rope swing or playing with the barn cats. It also means that, you know, he started learning how to use a hatchet to split kindling when he was three years old and his sister's doing the same thing. They can safely, I, I give them sort of small tomahawks. Well, her, he now can use larger tools and and it starts out, she'll just put sticks on a log and bash at it with this tomahawk. Um, and, you know, I'm setting this, the situation up to be very safe. And I'll say that right off the bat. Usually it's when it's colder out and she's wearing snow pants, it's not particularly sharp. So she's not going to slice through her finger, but she's learning the mechanics of it. Um, where my boy's job, he's primarily in, in, in charge of putting up kindling for the family. This morning when I went out to milk the cow, he went out and let out the chickens. Um, he halter trains our calves when they're born. Um, so either we keep them to integrate into our milking system or we sell them, but they're well-trained and so we get a higher value for them. One of the things that was really important to me is from the very beginning, they were around the death of animals. Um, and so we, we process between 25 and 40 chickens every year. and from when they were, you know, a few months old and were just sitting there, we'd have them right in the middle of what we were doing. When we bring back roadkill, you know, I have a, a photo of my daughter at age two holding on to the leg of an elk as I was skinning it. So they're just, um, they're very familiar with death in a positive way, I would say. Um, they know, they know it's food when we, when we processed our, our cows this summer, my, my little girl was saying, hooray, now we have fresh meat. And, they they get a little a little corner of the garden is their garden and we support their gardening but they have complete control over you know what do they want to plant so sometimes all the carrots are in a single clump and all the squash are in a single clump and then when they go to weed they pull out every single carrot that was ever in there but they also you know walk in the house with a pumpkin that they grew or they go and cut some cilantro or and, and so they become very proud of that. And I anticipate as they get older, their section of the garden will slowly get bigger. And so I would say, you know, at the, at the heart is that we believe in just including them in our life at their capacity. So they're exposed to all the processes that we do. And like my son doesn't use a chainsaw. My wife barely uses the chainsaw. She's less comfortable with it than I am. And so, you know, there's certain things we just won't incorporate them in for quite a while. But when we're out working, they're out there with us sitting in the shade playing 
or working alongside of us. And as they get older, they'll be able to participate more and more fully, I would say. And as I mentioned, when we're out foraging, that's kind of our special family time. And, and I'm hoping this year, my son really wants to learn how to fish. I don't, I'm not a particularly good at fishing. And so I'm hoping to find some friends who can teach both of us to fish. So now we have something we can do together, learn together, that also is incorporated into our subsistence lifestyle. So essentially just have them around. Exactly. And, and not assume that, that like, I don't believe in kid food. No. Right. Like, you know, when we, when we cook a meal, like if we're eating liver, they're also eating liver and, and they love it um, because they've been eating it their whole lives. When we're making sourdough bread, like they're also eating sourdough bread. And so they're, they're with us, but we're also treating them like we would anybody else who was around us. Um, we're asking for their help when they're capable of giving it. When they need a little space, we try to give them a little space. And I think they'll learn a lot more that way too. Uh, it's, it's hard to really learn how to do things if you're kept safe all the time and you're not allowed to do things. I'm, I'm a woodworker. And my three-year-old was out in the garage a little while ago, pounding nails in a board with a hammer. And my wife, I think she posted a picture of it on Instagram. She got one of her friends all blowing up about how unsafe it was, how he's going to hurt himself. I'm like, it's a hammer. Yeah. What is he going to do? I mean, even if he pounds his finger, it's a sore finger. I've pounded my thumb lots of times. That's just... yeah. And, and you never get the full like control and get used to your body and how to operate and how to use tools if you don't start. Yeah. And I would say that there's... You know, I, I look at, you know, what are the potential consequences of this? You know, with, with a hammer, it's pretty minimal. Both of my kids, they run around with hammers all the time. I start teaching them to whittle at age two, but it is with my absolute complete attention. I am, I usually have them sitting in front of me. I'm watching every move so I can grab onto them the moment, you know, and it took my son until he was about three and a half, maybe approaching four before he was actually whittling in a way that I didn't have to give him. I only had to give him 80% of my attention. And now he can whittle freely. My daughter still understands that she can whittle, but only with support. I want my children to be very comfortable with projectile weapons. And so, you know, I made, I just took a teeny little stick and threw a string on it and made light little arrows and my son, again, was shooting at, uh, I'm, I'd be surprised if he was two years old when he first started shooting. Um, but he wasn't shooting, he couldn't hurt anything. You know, they were little cattail shoots or whatever that he was shooting. Now he has a bow that he could hurt something. And, but he's, he's done it enough that he's safe. He, so he has the freedom to shoot sort of whenever he wants because he understands the, the framework. I recently have just been introducing him to firearms, but he's shooting a, a very weak BB gun that, you know, and again, when he was first shooting, I was there a hundred percent of the time with my complete attention. Um, and as he has developed the respect for the tool, he can now shoot sort of when I'm just around, but I'm not necessarily watching him. And yeah, could you put somebody's eye out for sure? If you were really stupid, accidents but happen. Accidents happen, but he, like he, he, I don't think he could kill a chicken with this BB gun, you know? And, and, you know, next I'm going to introduce him to, a, I'm going to get him a 410 shotgun and start teaching him that skill set. 
But the reason I chose a 410 is the range is much shorter. So if he, as he's, as he's shooting it, makes a bad, you know, I'm, I'm worried about a 22 where I live because it's very flat and a 22 travels very far. And so I'm not sure if he'll, I, I don't know when he'll be able to shoot a 22 without supervision on my property. He may not, it may not be till he's 16 because the potential consequences are so high that I'm, I'm going to maintain my supervision and support much longer. But I, I look at the potential danger and I, and I support them until they show facility where their potential for, you know, extreme injury has gone down significantly. And yes, does my son cut himself whittling? Often, just like I do still, you know, like it happens. Um, and yet he's learning and, and he's in general, very safe with it. And, uh, band-aids are a pretty normal part of life on kids that young. And they know where the band-aids are and they know how to put them on. <laughs> We've talked a lot about, so you, you do clothing and a lot of utensils and a lot of food. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your waddle and daub shelter? Is that for, I, I, I've seen pictures. Is that for just some of the programs you do? Or is that like a functional something for the cow or some of the livestock? Or what's, what's the use of that shelter? Yeah, so it's it I love this project because it has multiple layers to it. The first is we get our, our water from an irrigation ditch. We have water rights here in Colorado and and it's being choked out in places with willow on one of our neighbors' properties. And nobody really wanted to deal with the willow because it's a lot of work. And we're far enough down the ditch that we kind of lose a lot of our water. Um, as do some of our neighbors close to us also lose a lot of their water because we share the same system. And so we started by just clearing. We, we took some students in our programs up there and started clearing out the willow as kind of an act of good neighborliness. And honestly, to help ourselves get more water so we can, you know, irrigate our pastures better. And then we had this pile of material. Um, and so we were looking at it like what, cause we'd cut it and haul it out. So we, cause we didn't want to just leave it on our neighbor's property. And so I forget the inspiration, but we decided we were going to build a waddle. Oh, my wife, we have a, a cattail thatched wiki up that we've been using for years with our programs. And she said, why don't we make a waddle wall off the side of it as a windbreak? And so we did, and it went great. And we're like, that's so cool. Let's make a waddle wall off the other side of it. <laughs> so now we have this wiki up with this sort of V shape of these walls coming off of it. And that went great. And our students loved it. And so then I said, okay, now we have to make a house. And so we pounded posts in the ground and we learned quite a bit because this willow was um, quite branchy and it had been growing for a long time in this ditch. And so we learned for the waddle and dog, we had to do much more trimming of the pieces of willow. Um, and then we put these posts in a circle and we simply did sort of an in and out weaving pattern um, to make walls that are probably three and a half feet high is my guess. And then um, one of our instructors um, with a group of teenagers built a reciprocal roof. So they put rafters up on the wall structure where each rafter leans on the previous rafter. Um, and that's how they're all held up. And so 
Then the next step was to thatch it. So we harv- we have about a quarter mile of cattails on our property. And so we were harvesting cattail and thatching it. Um, and then we started doing the daubing with a mixture of our, our soil has a lot of clay in it. So we use the soil and then we were mixing in horse manure for a fiber element. This structure in particular is primarily sort of experimental. It's maybe a nine foot circle. Um, and I can only stand up pretty close to the center. Um, as I mentioned, we do have a lot of friends in the primitive skills world who are somewhat nomadic and will pass through. And so I love the idea of having kind of like a little guest house <laughs> where folks can stay. I'm going to build a, you know, there'll be a fire pit in there. We're going to make a, an elevated bed platform off of one side. But the, the primary function of this is educational, a space where folks can spend the night. I imagine, you know, my, my kids love going down there and just playing games. It's like the best like playhouse ever, but it was really, you know, the main function was, can we explore this process and then on a small scale and then scale it up to understand what kind of undertaking it is. So yeah, my plan is we, we had to stop daubing because it just got too cold. And so it's, we only need about one more warm day, but we probably won't get it till March or April to finish this one. And then already my students and I are designing the next one, which I'm hoping to be more in the realm of like a, you know, 15 foot circle. So we're going to go substantially larger um, and make the walls closer to five or six feet high. Um, And so that will then become hopefully a classroom and workshop space, because that's the one thing we have little about here is indoor spaces. So our we do run programs year round, but we're limited in what we can offer in the winter months. And so to have a space where, again, people could sleep or um, we could teach spoon carving or bow carving or things like that in January with a fire going. Yeah, so that's kind of the, the, the next phase, I hope. And then I've also thought, you know, I want to build a sauna. And so I'm on the fence. Do we do a, a cob sauna or do we do a waddle and daub sauna? I've become very much in love with this structure. In our barn, we're going to build out we have this one section of the barn that's, you know, a dirt floor and just bare walls right now that we're going to build out as a kind of workshop space. And so we're going to do some slip straw insulation um, and a poured adobe floor. But I, I want to do a little additional sort of room partition in there. And I'm going to do an interior waddle and daub wall is my plan. Ah, <laughs> oh, this is sounding amazing. Huh? I really want to try building one. We, we, uh, we work hard, but I mean, we're also playing most of the time. <laughs> what's been the most difficult part about doing it? The waddle and dob? Yeah, the waddle and dob. But what's, what's some advice for someone that's just trying an experimental project? Do you have anything for someone that, uh, has never done one before that any problems they might run into that you ha- hadn't thought about before you got started in one? Right. Okay. So for the waddle and dob house, a couple of things we ran into I'm concerned the posts are not deep enough in the ground. We took posts that are probably three inches in diameter and just pounded them into the ground. This structure is small, and so it has a low wind profile. And And it's amazing how much structure just building it. Like when we first built it, I was really worried about it, uh, like just when we did the waddle part. And then as we've put on the roof and we've started daubing it, it's become incredibly solid. Next time, I think I would do a post hole digger and 
try to get them, you know, two feet in the ground or so 18 inches, two feet in the ground. Um, even for a small project, unless you really don't care if it falls over, that would be my first thing. Getting the mix right for the daub has been challenging, not challenging, but it's taken, you know, we'll, we'll lay down a tarp and we put down the, the dry soil. And then the, we, we started by just dumping a bunch of horse manure on there and then realized we had to break that up first. So then we put it in a big bin and we were smashing up all the horse manure. And so then getting the ratio and then we pour water and we were kind of squishing it with our feet and we'd pick up the tarp and roll it and then squish it and pick up the tarp and roll it and getting the right mixture of manure to the clay. And luckily our soil has a lot of clay. I think if you, that would be difficult if you had to access soil with enough clay and you didn't just have it around. That would be, for me, the biggest sticking point, probably, which is kind of maybe pun not intended. <laughs> but then getting the ratio right of the manure, and, and you could use other things other than manure. We chose horse manure because they don't digest as efficiently as our cows, and so it's more fibrous. But we could sit there and chop up grasses or cattails or other things like that. But there are a lot of, we have a lot of neighbors with horses, so I called around. I, I get sort of these, I go through periods of time where I call neighbors with the strangest requests. So when I called my neighbors and I said, I'd like to come and get a trailer load of horse manure, they were all flabbergasted and so excited that somebody actually <laughs> wanted it. Um, but what we've found is, you know, if we don't get the ratio right, it won't stick as well on the waddle, it'll crack. And so that's been just a learning process. And I can't really tell you what the ratio is because I don't know. It's just kind of a feel thing. And I would say the other mistake we made is we started doing the daubing in October in Colorado. Mm. And so we just ran out of time. Um, so if I were to do this again, the, the waddle part doesn't necessarily matter, but I would, I would start daubing, especially if it was a bigger project than mine. Like the next one, we'll probably start daubing in May or April because so far we've probably put I mean, not long, six hours into it, but, you know, if you go from a nine foot structure with three and a half foot walls to a 15 foot structure with five foot walls, this is an exponentially longer deal. The other, the other big pro tip I would say is really take time in the waddling to make the slimmest profile you can. Our first couple of rows that we did we didn't quite think that through. And so a lot of the butt ends of our willow came out really far. And so we had to go back through with hand saws and clippers and sort of trim everything up so that, um, cause if you have your wall and then you have this one stick that's going eight inches out of it, you just can't get it covered with the daub. And so taking the time to really get a good tight weave, I think would make, would make the whole thing faster as well. It does sound like it would make it significantly easier. You're not trying to cover something that's sticking away out. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, you know, part of this has been learning and part of it is also, you know, we were doing it with eight-year-olds and 10-year-olds. And and so sometimes we just all got enthusiastically involved in the process. And the fact that they're out there, like making a waddle and daub house from scratch was worth kind of some of the inefficiencies that we had later on. Yeah. On that note, you guys do a lot of youth and teen programs. You want to tell us a little bit about that and what you guys do for a living? Yeah. So I run, oh, well, I co-founded with my wife, an organization called the Laughing Coyote Project. And 
sort of our mission is to connect people to the earth through primitive and traditional skills. And so what that looks like day to day is we run a lot of programs during the school year for homeschool students. So they sign up for us like a school year. So from September until May, more or less, and they'll come out one or two days a week and they sign up for the whole year. And it's really beautiful because we get to go very deep into processes. They're all required to have knives. They mostly have Mora knives and we teach them knife safety um, and then a variety of knife skills. They learn fire making, they'll learn archery, we'll make atlatls, they'll weave baskets, uh, wildlife tracking, foraging, stone tools, primitive pottery, kind of like the whole smorgasbord of, of what's available to primitive and traditional skills. And we'll have students come back year after year after year. And so we have a couple of programs that are for 8 to 12-year-olds, and then we have a program for teenagers, which also involves some backcountry trips, um, overnight trips. And it's really cool. This year, our teen group, most of them have been with us for four or five years. And so, you know, it'll be snowing and we're like, all right, let's make a fire. And in 10 minutes, they make a fire. And so that's really cool to see their, just over time, their facility with the skills. At our overnight last year, they all made pack baskets. And so that's what we do during the year with youth. Um, we also run adult workshops throughout the year. And those will be anywhere from a day or a week in length. So sometimes it'll be like a buckskin sewing class for a couple of days. Um, my wife teaches a beautiful Scandinavian style um, buckskin bag. So that'll be maybe a couple of days. Or we'll teach a three or four day willow basketry class. Or we'll go into the backcountry and trail elk for a week. We're starting to add expeditions into our um, into our schedule. And so in January, we're taking a group of teenagers down to St. Croix in the Caribbean um, to do tropical primitive skills. We're planning to take a group over to Italy to focus more on sort of butchery and cheese making and, and things like that in Italy. We also run summer camps for youth where we run family programs. We run a free monthly skill share. So just folks in the area can come out. It's usually the first Saturday of the month and we'll teach a skill like friction fire or cordage. There'll also be people playing music or a potluck and just ways for us to come together as a community. Yeah. Did you tell us a little bit more about your skill share for people that want to come in? Cause I, I know quite a few people in like the Boulder or Denver area who um, are interested in the primitive skills. I've met a number of them. So I'm just, I think people would have fun with that. A get together once a month. Can you give people a little bit more info about where you guys are located and how they can find out about it? Yeah. So we uh, live in between Boulder and Longmont. So north of Denver, Colorado, and we host the Skillshare at our farm. And it's the first Saturday of every month, typically from like one to four. We'll do different formats based on the time of year. Um, we don't do a Skillshare, you know, December, January, because we don't have a large enough indoor space when it's cold. And then like February will be kind of touch and go. Uh, we typically advertise it on Facebook and Instagram. We're just there at Laughing Coyote Project on both of those. And it's great. It's, it's family friendly. Um, it's free and it's, it's kind of an informal format. So usually on Instagram or Facebook, we'll post what the theme is that month. And so like it might be archery. So we'll have a bunch of bows set up. We'll, and arrows. We'll have a target and a backstop set up. And then other folks will bring their own bows and their own arrows and we'll just spend the whole day shooting. And, and if you don't know how to shoot, we'll do our best to get you set up and, and teach. Focusing primarily on safety because 
you know, we might have a large group and so we'll make sure everybody's safe. We'll get the technique um, and get everybody shooting bows or the last skill share was uh, friction fire. So we had a lot of bow drill kits made. We had a lot of hand drill kits ready and we gave demonstrations. We gave hints. We also, that was when we had a lot of music happening. And so, yeah, just anybody interested can show up. Families can show up. Although we do ask parents to, you know, it's not, we're not going to be watching kids. So it's not a place to just drop kids off. Um, but yeah, the best way is just to reach out on Facebook or Instagram. Instagram is, I would say, the platform we use the most. Or just follow us there and, and we'll post about the Skillshare and what time it is. And and yeah, it's in the Boulder Longmont area. Do you generally have quite a few people show up to that? It's so funny. We just will never know. Um, the last one was huge. We had 45 or 50 people come through um, and it was a blast. We had you know, probably eight or nine folks all jamming together, playing music. We had our, all of our instructors here helping with um, friction fire. And then we'll have other ones with six or eight people. And so it's really variable month to month, but it's a lot of fun and a great way to, you know, my opinion about all these skills is um, they don't belong to me, right? I don't, I don't have any secrets. I stand on the shoulders of everybody who came before me, who, generously gave the skills um, to me as well. And so if you come here and ask us, you know, how I cook liver or how we tan hides, we'll just, we like, we like to share everything we know. And so it's a great way to see like, what is friction fire all about? Or what is cordage all about? Or drop spindle spinning or, and then also just, there's a lot of cool folks that show up and I, and we have new people that show up every time that I've never met before. And so, you know, our hope is to build, a community of people in this area that are all um, interested in these skills and, and can begin to collaborate and work together and, and find some um, connection all together in these skills that are just uh, have brought me so much joy in my life. Sounds like you've got a pretty good start to it. Yeah. <laughs> I know I would have loved something like this in the areas I was growing up when I was younger to go yeah. to your, your, either your youth or your teen programs or something like that, I would have had a ball. Me too. That's kind of been one of my inspirations. Sometimes it's kind of like, gosh, what did I always want to do? Like one day I was like, I, I want to learn how to throw tomahawks. So I learned how to throw tomahawks. And right after that, we started teaching everybody how to throw tomahawks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a fun life. Sounds like a fun yeah. life at least. Yeah, it is. It is. It's full. It's full, but it's fun. Yeah. How many, uh, how many youth do you guys have coming through? Are you guys usually pretty full with them as well? Yeah. So we, like our groups right now range in size from 13 to 16 students each day um, at a time. And we have three days that we have different groups coming out. And then when we do summer camps, we'll have 25 students at a time. So yeah, it's a lot. We also, I should say, we play a lot of games. I mean, that's kind of one of our signatures. And so we play hard and and we work hard and so we'll play some epic games of capture the flag and then sit down and start busting out friction fire coals um and so with the with the youth groups you know being 13 or 14 or 15 kids we can we can really get a lot happening in terms of games and then and then they they learn a lot of pretty thorough skills as well yeah that would have been a ton of fun growing up. I never really knew anyone practicing things, so I never really had uh, teachers. I was always trying to learn from books, and this would have been so much easier. Oh, my gosh, yes. 
yeah, I, I started with books. And one of the things I've learned about myself is that I really need to learn something for a human being from a human being. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of admiration for folks who are self-taught and that's just not how I operate. So I depend on other people to learn the things that are important to me. I've done a lot of trial and error, a lot of error. Yeah. We have an instructor like that and it's amazing. I really appreciate he has like a, a fresh and different approach to many of these skills than I do because he just sat down and figured it out. And that's really cool. Again, it's just not my personality. And so I, I do, I really appreciate that about folks. And, and also just learning your own learning style is, I think, helps a lot to uh, figure out the best way to, to go about these things. Love it. Um, I get kind of carried away with these conversations and forget how long we've been, but it's it's been a while. So maybe we should wrap it up. Yeah, yeah, this has been fun. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Tell people once again where they can find you. You said Instagram is where you spend more of your time on the social side of things. Go ahead and give people your website name and any other information that you want to share with them. Yeah, our website is laughingcoyoteproject.org. We use Instagram the most often in terms of social media. It's uh, Laughing Coyote Project. And we also just recently started an Instagram account for our sort of more homesteading side of things. We call it Fire Willow Farm. And so that'll be more of the cheese making and the milking and the gardening and, and homeschooling even, things like that. So, um, and then Facebook is Laughing Coyote Project. I'll have to look into the uh, Fire Willow Farm one. Yeah, I think it's about a day old, so we're just getting started. Perfect. There. I'll yeah. be one of the first followers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, Neil, for coming on. It's been a been a total total blast. Um, final questions: We've been talking about your laughing coyote thing. Where did you come up with the name? You know, it's so interesting. You know, because this what we started laughing coyote in two thousand and seven. I think the laughing. You know, it's so funny because now. I don't know what the name would be if we were to start again, because of course we're different people than we were 13 years ago. Yeah. Um, we, as I said, we play hard and we work hard, but we try to maintain a certain level of um, irreverence and a certain uh, like a level of enjoyment and playfulness. And so that's where the laughing comes from. The coyote, one of the things I love about coyotes is they're one of the few animals that sort of the more you pressure them, the more resilient they become. You know, so as humans have tried to push them out of habitat, their numbers have increased. They found more niche niche um, environments, and I I like that image of resiliency. It's of course a very iconic American animal as well, and 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 then you know we could talk about where that where the coyote lives in mythology and things like that. But but what I really enjoy about it is this idea of. You know, they found coyotes in Manhattan. They find them in Denver. They find them out in rugged wilderness areas. And I think that little piece of wildness is something we can all connect to. And then the project piece is just, I'm not done yet. You know, I don't have a finished product yet. I don't know. I don't know what this is going to look like. It's almost like it's just the evolution and the experimentation. Um, what we're doing now looks completely different from what we were doing 10 years ago. It looks different than what we were doing five years ago. And so instead of calling ourselves a school or, or anything as though we, we um, know what we're doing <laughs> or, or are sort of polished, you know, we, we just live in this sort of exciting state of creation. And so it, it just kind of expresses our, our personalities, our, our approach to the world and, 
and the fact that we're still growing every day. All right. What do you think? Fun conversation, huh? I enjoyed Neil's outlook on life a lot. Um, the positivity and the way he goes about holistically looking at the interaction between modern and traditional and the use of both. And he doesn't get down or negative about it as just, you know, this is what works for me. And yeah, I appreciate that. I, I know some people who it's like strictly one or the other, and it's hard to relate to a diehard sometimes. I mean, you can appreciate their point of view and you can definitely agree with it, but at the same time, you know, it's not a very practical outlook and not very many people are going to be willing to make a change and embrace that little bit. So it's fun seeing a an approach that's different and definitely includes a lot of the old ways of living, traditional skills, things like that. But that's not a complete rejection of modern life because, like I said, I, I don't know very many people who are actually willing to commit completely and give it all up. Um, yeah, there's too much we enjoy about modern life to ask people to, to do that. I also really enjoyed the conversation we had about, uh, subsistence living and, uh, the strive to generate all your own food. A, the experience is a lot of fun. I really enjoy being able to harvest or grow my own food, uh, forage, gather it, whatever, it's a ton of fun. And I really agree with Neil. That's that's one thing that people really should prioritize as one of the most important skills to learn is yeah, either the foraging or learning to grow it or a combination of both. And it's fun seeing the interplay of growing and raising your own food versus hunting or foraging. And it is amazing too, the abundance that you get when you do start raising or growing your own when you have a little bit of land, just that's impressive. We yeah, have the thoughts on subsistence and just the, the scavenger mentality of being able to look around you and see what's in your landscape that's not being used and trying to make use of it. Um, that I really appreciate. And it doesn't matter what particular craft you're into. Yeah. If you're into you know woodworking, you can always look around and see the fallen branches that have come off of trees or yeah, you may see some that are being taken down in the neighbor's yard or underneath the power lines or something like that. And you can always harvest, you can always utilize wood that's just being harvested and not actually going to be utilized for anything. Same thing with a lot of other skills and crafts. I mean, if you're, if you're on the lookout and you're paying attention, you will always notice materials, potential materials, things like that laying around that you need to just keep an eye on it, remember where they're at, and take advantage of. And you can you can often come up with free resources for various projects. But yeah, I really appreciate Neil coming on. Uh, I had a fun conversation, really enjoyed connecting with him. Uh, I think that's probably one of the parts I enjoy most about doing this podcast so far is just the, just the ability to talk with people that I've never met before and connect with them. So yeah, go ahead and uh, follow Neil. He's over at um, laughingcoyoteproject.org. No spaces, no dash, anything like that. And then on Instagram, he's at Laughing County Project and Fire Willow Farm is his new one. As well as over at Facebook at Laughing County Project. Yeah, I highly recommend if you're in the Boulder area, though his his monthly skill share sound like a ton of fun. So give him a follow on Instagram or Facebook and 
keep yourself appraised of what activities they have going on, what they're doing at their monthly skill shares, when they are, where they are. Go enjoy the community, get to know other people who are interested in the same type of skills. Sounds like a ton of fun to me. I'm actually thinking that maybe I should start something like that around here. I don't really know anyone else that's interested in these type of skills, but maybe if I started something, yeah, I'd meet a few. So sounds like a ton of fun. If I was in the area, I'd definitely hit it up. Yeah, once again, best way to help the podcast grow at the moment is share it with other people you know that might be interested. Also go you know, subscribe and rate it on uh, iTunes iTunes is most helpful, but you know, whatever format or place you get your podcast, that'd, that'd work as well. That'd be wonderfully helpful. I'd also love any feedback you guys have for me, things you want to cover, guests you have, suggestions you have, um, tips on improving something. If there's something that, uh, you know, with my podcast format or audio or something like that, I mean, please let me know. I'd love to hear it. Can always improve. For this episode, I don't have a ton of resources in the show notes or anything, but I'll link up the couple things we talked about and link to Neil and his various um, locations down at uh, the show notes. And those will be over at um, folkcraftrevival.com slash seven. I think I need to simplify the format of how I'd been doing these. So I'm just going to slash and then put the number of the episode that way. Yeah, it just simplifies it. So I'm probably going to go back and not probably, I am going to go back and redo the last few episodes as well. So they all go to just a simple number. It'll just make my life easier, make it easier for people to remember. Uh, try not to judge the website too harshly at the moment. Still a work in progress. Uh, I have it up and functioning, but it is not pretty. And I, I know that I'm learning as I go and trying to put things something together. So at some point it'll be in its, uh, pretty finished complete format but it's not right now so um yeah try not to judge too harshly the show notes will be over there at folkcraftrevival.com slash seven though so yeah thanks for listening really appreciate it let's get out there and make something <laughs>